Have you heard of the story of Sammy and the duck? You might have heard a different name for Sammy, but we're just going to use Sammy, and his sister's name is Marie. Now, they were staying with their grandparents for uh, a few days, and uh, Sammy had a slingshot, and and, uh, early on, the first day he was there, he he decided he'd go out into the woods and, and play target practice. And uh, he, you know, would shoot rocks and try to hit things, and he just wasn't hitting anything at all. And so about noon, it was, he was getting hungry, and uh, lunch was coming on, and so he decided to head back to the house. And on the way there, as he came out of the woods, right there at the edge, there's one of Grandma's prized ducks. And he, he takes aim and shoots the duck right in the head, dead as a doornail. He looks around, wants to see if there's anybody looking. He takes the duck and tosses it in the bushes at the edge of the woods so nobody can see. And then he heads to the house, trying to play it cool, making sure that nobody knows he's done something wrong. But inside, there's all this turmoil, of course. And then um, he gets inside and has lunch. And after lunch, Grandma asks Marie, Sammy's sister, could you do the dishes with me? And Marie says, oh, no. Sammy asked if he could do the dishes a little earlier, and then she leaned over, and in Sammy's ear, she whispers, remember the duck. You see, Marie had been watching, and she saw what had happened. Well, Marie took advantage of Sammy several times over the next couple days, and finally, he got a, he'd had enough of it, and he got fed up with her uh, blackmail, and decided that it was going to be uh, easier on him if he just told his grandma the truth. And so he uh, gets his grandma, uh, sits her down, and uh, tells her the, the whole story. And she kind of smiled a little bit, put her hand on his shoulder, and said, Sammy, I forgive you. In fact, I knew all along that it, was, that it had happened. I saw it from the kitchen window. Sammy was astonished and was wondering, why? Why didn't you tell me that you'd seen earlier? His grandma said, I wanted you to learn to be honest and fess up for yourself when you've done something wrong. Now, this is a moral tale. It's the kind of thing that we'd tell in a children's story. In fact, you probably have heard it in a children's story sometime. Uh, but it, it has a important moral values for adults as well. In this story, Sammy does something that's wrong. It's clearly not a good thing. He then covers up the wrong thing that he's done. And and you have this sinister sequence of hiding the truth and uh, being blackmailed and manipulated because of it, and and finally this emotional and relational relief that comes through honesty. And when you look at this honesty, it really demonstrates Jesus' statement when he says, the truth will set you free. We all know that lying is wrong and that honesty is the best thing. It makes sense that it's in the Ten Commandments. Nobody's questioning why it should be there. Ellen White has some pretty strong things to say in her devotional, The Sons and Daughters of God. Um, Page 64, she says, The Ninth Commandment requires an inviolable regard for exact truth in every declaration by which the character of our fellow men may be affected. The tongue, which is kept so little under the control of the human agent, is to be bridled by strong conscientious principles, by the law of love toward God and man. And then toward the end of that devotional, 
Uh, She says, everything that Christians do should be as transparent as the sunlight. Truth is of God. Deception in every one of its myriad forms is of Satan. We cannot speak the truth unless our minds are continually guided by him who is truth. The ninth commandment says this, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, Jesus drops the against your neighbor part when he repeats this command to the, um, the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. He simply says, you shall not bear false witness. Now, while lying, lying or not lying is certainly the intent, um, Ellen White characterizes this law as prohibiting any form of deception at all, like uh, Sammy hiding the duck is a form of lying, a, a deception. And and I think that gets to really what the heart of the law is all about. God is prohibiting, not just saying something that's untrue, but even making a a gesture um, that's designed to mislead somebody. He's saying that covering something up to save your butt is wrong. Jesus goes even further in explaining this command in Matthew chapter 6. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 and 34. He says, Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven. And he goes on and describes not uh, swearing by heaven or earth or, or anything. But then in verse 37, he says, Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more comes from evil. Not only is all deceit mixed in with this law to not be a false witness, but uh, so is taking an oath, or not not that pledging uh, to be uh, truthful in a court of law is prohibited by Jesus. That's, of course, not the problem. Um, But but he's saying, don't swear. Don't, Don't make an oath and promise something. Just make sure that your word is always true. Jesus is calling us to simplicity and integrity in our communication. Integrity is a a word that's um, defined as being a a state of wholeness, to not be divided. Uh, Someone with integrity is someone who others know to be reliable um, as a person. Someone with integrity um, is honest and true and consistent. Their word is trustworthy. When they say something, everyone knows that uh, they genuinely mean it and that they can be trusted to do what they say. The Bible says that David walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing what God had commanded him to do. In Job 2, God calls, God God himself calls Job a man who fears God and turns away from evil and holds fast his integrity. Proverbs wisely says in Proverbs 10, 9, whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. And then in 19, 1, uh, Proverbs 19, 1, he says, better is a poor person who walks in his integrity than one who is crooked in speech and is a fool. You know, my children enjoy listening to uh, a musical adventure, and it's uh, a health-themed thing. It's a a castle where each room has a, a new name, a new word, and, uh, and the kids have to kind of explore and find out what that word it means. And in one of those rooms in this castle, this health castle, uh, the, the, the word is integrity. And they end up singing this song that uh, integrity means uh, being true to oneself, being true to, to yourself. Uh, truth is a core component of integrity. And clearly one of the main concepts behind this law to not be false. Being true to oneself is uh, being honest with yourself. 
if you look at the Alcoholics Anonymous 12 Steps program, the fourth step says that um, we should take a fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And the reason this is necessary is that sin and addiction divides us into a life of deception. Um, we seek to hide. Uh, we live a life of pretense, and um, we show off to people what we want them to see. We become two-faced individuals, two-faced people, the, the real face, and then the facade that we like to, to show to people. The ninth commandment, uh, one of the things that it's pointing us to, is an invitation to shed the facade, to fearlessly face ourselves, and to choose to live with honesty and integrity. Regardless of what you might think, church is and should be uh, a place to be honest about who you are. Uh, some people think that church is a place where you have to be good in order to be accepted. As a group, we do lift up moral ideals and we project behavioral norms, and it would make it easy for somebody to feel out of place if they don't fit in with their behaviors and beliefs um, with the rest of the group. But the reality is that each of us falls short of the, the goodness and the glory of God. Not one of us is a match to the ideal that we project. We're all sinners in various states of brokenness and disarray. And for any of us to have an I'm better than you um, attitude, it would be the height of hypocrisy. Like we, we are literally in church because we have admitted that we're sinners in need of a savior. And for us to look at others and be like, oh, you're such a bad sinner is just the worst. Obviously, that's not the intention of church. The intention of church is to be a community that's kind of like Alcoholics Anonymous. Everyone at AA meeting, they come because they know they have a need, and they participate in this group because they need the support of that, that group, that team, that, that uh, common interest in overcoming an addiction. And they, they know that they're, they're prone to abusing alcohol again. And so they stand up or sit around a circle or whatever it is in that group, and they say, hi, I'm an alcoholic. It's clear, it's transparent. Who they are is known by this group. And, and if you're not an alcoholic and you're in that mix, then you'd feel out of place and they'd feel out of place with you being there. You're, not, you're just not invited to that meeting if that's not a struggle that you face. And you wouldn't understand the struggles that the rest of the group is going through. And uh, if you hear stories, you'd be prone to judging them for the things that they've done. And, and uh, stories that you might tell would probably not connect with their experience at all. Now, no, no matter how long you've been a Christian, we are all sinners. I can still say, as a pastor and a Christian all my life, hi, I'm Jason, and I'm a sinner. I can't even say that I've been sinner sober for 10 days, not even a day. I've broken God's law of love today. I've failed to meet the standard of God's enduring and patient love. If you can't recognize that same reality in your own heart, then, then this church thing is probably not the right place for you. You're going to feel out of place in this context where sinners come to help each other grow closer to God. Or maybe it's just that you're not being honest with yourself. 
Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Proverbs 19.1, that's talking to the, the churchgoers. Better is a poor person who walks in his integrity than one who is crooked in speech and is a fool. To be poor in spirit and walk in integrity is to recognize our brokenness, to, to take that fearless moral inventory. When we try to walk around showing people how good we are, we're the one who is crooked in speech and is a fool. That facade is in opposition to God's design for the human uh, spirit and for the community of Christians. He wants us to be authentically, transparently ourselves and, and to, be, to have that wholeness, that integrity of person. In fact, according to Jesus, you can't experience the kingdom of God unless you shed that facade and boldly live in the truth of who you are. In Romans 1 verse 29, Paul includes gossip and slander and deceit in the long list of evils that result from not acknowledging God. Gossip and slander are part of this you shall not bear false witness command. Gossip boldly asserts a knowledge about somebody else and then proclaims it to others as if it were fact. It shares private information and reveals or exposes someone in some negative way. The modern version of, of the gossip uh, is the cyberbullying, um, saying things in public about people or revealing things in public, um, social media, public spaces. Or, or you could add trolling to that list, you know, uh, pointing out somebody's flaws in the comments or um, uh, criticizing somebody in that context. And we can do it in our context today, uh, we can do it anonymously without ever revealing who we are and, and feel like we're we're hiding, getting away with something. I believe that gossip is dishonest, even when it's true. Let me explain. Have you ever called, ever called somebody up to uh, discuss something the pastor did or said before talking to me about it? Have, have you ever thought that maybe I said something wrong or I had some wrong direction um, in a, a sermon that I did or, or maybe I just um, did something that you didn't expect or didn't like, and, and you wanted to double-check with somebody else. I mean, the, I put that in quotes, double-check. It's, it's almost as if we want to validate the criticism, and so we go around and, and we see if other people have the same opinion as we do. But in, in that way, we're spreading, we're spreading uh, our, our gossip, like the, the seeds of a dandelion. We kind of blow them around, and they, they take root in other people's lives. We form an opinion about somebody, and then we talk to others about it. Hmm. Now, I, if you've talked, to me, uh, talked about me to somebody else, that's, that's okay. I understand. I'm not going to hold it against you. And I just want to admit, I've done the same thing, probably not intentionally or maliciously, but it's, it's an easy thing to do, to talk about people behind their backs. There's a lot of strong opinions out there right now. Um, and people are strongly in favor or strongly opposed to maybe a prophetic interpretation. And whichever side that person is on, they're confident that they are right and the other person is wrong. And uh, they talk about those that they disagree with. And, and the atmosphere can easily be that if you don't understand what I understand about the Bible, about politics, whatever it is, if you don't understand what I understand, then you're ignorant or obstinate, 
And, and that characterization, that atmosphere that characterizes others as negative, um, it breaks down the, the, the bonds of love that God designed for his church. We create division and brokenness with every word of gossip. Gossip is not being true to the other person. And, and even if it's sharing truth about that other person, it's not being true to the value that person has in God's eyes. And, and so I would suggest that gossip is dishonest, even if it's true. God's calling, to be, calling us to be true to ourselves, to, to have integrity um, with ourselves, to be honest with ourselves. And, and I think we should take a, f- a fierce and bold moral inventory of, of ourselves. He invites us to expose our one true face to the world and to live with integrity and authenticity. It, it does not follow, though, that he invites us to expose somebody else's facade. Jesus' own example shows us uh, a very different uh, approach. Uh, Remember the story early in Jesus' ministry where the disciples are um, uh, walking with him and he stops at a well. They go into the town. He he has this conversation with a woman that comes to the, the well and he ends up exposing her. I mean, just telling her who she is. And, and this is a, a woman who had experienced some moral lapses in her life. But it's telling that when he exposes this to the, uh, the, this person's experience, the disciples are completely absent from the story. They're away getting food. And the woman is, is not harmed by Jesus exposing her life. In fact, she is ennobled, and she goes back excitedly telling the neighbors, come and see a man who told me everything that I ever did. It, it was a healing thing for her in that context, but it was not public. He did not gossip about her. On another occasion, uh, Jesus f- um, is forced to be uh, the deciding vote in a woman's Uh, trial for adultery. But instead of voting, uh, Jesus simply says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And then he bends down and begins to write in in the sand uh, on the the pavement there. And he's exposing the sins of the the accusers, these leaders, these spiritual leaders in, in in the Jewish culture. But he's not doing it in such a way that the whole crowd hears about their own sins. Uh, it's only the people who have made accusations that peer over his shoulder and then run away in shame. He exposes them, but not in a gossipy way. Um, he, he's not afraid to be honest, to be truthful, but he goes directly to the source. And as a result, he actually wins people to him and their lives are transformed because they have experienced the truth themselves. Over and over again, we find Jesus treating people with generosity of opinion. Uh, those are a couple experiences where he, he exposed some wrong, but uh, this is a, a teacher, a spiritual leader who hangs out with people who are drunk, uh, with, with prostitutes, um, with, the, with the common people. And, and these are people who, you know, fishermen and zealots and whatnot, people looked down on these individuals. These were the lowest dregs of society. And yet Jesus didn't look at these people with criticism and judgmentalism. Instead, he saw them for what they could be if they had a relationship with him. He called the disciples from being fishermen and zealots and tax collectors, 
And he knew that these were the group of people that were going to change the world, that through them he'd plant a church, a church that would be the, the strongest religion in the, in the world today, the predominant religion in the world, and, and a, a church that would um, take the gospel to the ends of the world. Paul shows what happened to those people who are treated with this kind of generosity of opinion. After listing horrible, evil behaviors in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses, uh, verse 11, he says this, and such were some of you. He lists all kinds of bad things, including gossipers, and he says, and such were some of you, but you are washed, you were sanctified, you were justified by the, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. When we look at someone else who disagrees with us, who has a different opinion than us, God invites us not to be critical, not to be judgmental, certainly not to gossip behind their back. He invites us to treat them with generosity and to think about them um, with hope. When we talk about somebody behind their back, um, we're, we're pushing them down in the perception of other people. Um, but when we treat them with generosity, what we should be doing is lifting them up in the eyes of other people. We should be uh, talking hope and possibility and, and, uh, and focusing on what's possible with God's uh, assistance in people's lives. We should remember that even if their current state is sinful and evil, the possibility with Jesus is righteousness and transformation. In a sense, we should be treating everybody with the same kind of regard and value as if we were all in heaven right now, perfectly obeying God's law, we, we should treat each other with that expectation that that's where we're going to be, citizens and members of the heavenly community. Proverbs 25.11 says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Our, our words should be treasure, the kind that enriches other people's lives. I want to say that, I want to say that I'm sorry for the words that I've spoken that have not been enriching. There have been several times that I've spoken ill of precious people, not, not intentionally, um, not being mean, um, but I haven't always had this, this mindset that we're all citizens of heaven, and I want to say I'm sorry. And, and I want you to hold me to account. If me or anybody else comes to you with some um, negative word, uh, some, whether it's truthful or not, gossip, I want you to refuse to listen to me. I want you to tell me, no, don't talk to me about that. Go talk to them. Follow Jesus' example. Protecting our, our speech and our ears from gossip requires a certain intellectual discipline. We can't think so highly of our own opinion and beliefs that we dismiss the input of others. I'm, I'm going to call this intellectual humility. Intellectual humility doesn't prevent you from holding a strong opinion or a strong belief, but it does leave you open for refinement and for correction. This is, I believe, an essential quality of every Bible student who really wants to know the heart of God. We have to have um, a teachability and openness to being wrong. In the Bible Echo, Ellen White makes this statement, take up the Bible without prejudice and in a humble, teachable spirit and with, the understanding of, and with the understanding open to the impressions of the Spirit of God, let its convincing power 
mold the life and conscience. There's something about a teachable spirit that's absolutely necessary in order for God to work in our hearts. If, if we can't be moved from our current beliefs and opinions, then how can the Holy Spirit lead us? In a book called The Ministry of Healing, um, there's a chapter called In Contact with Others. And it's one of my favorite uh, chapters, that chapter and the one right uh, before it. Chapter 40 and 41 of that book is really fantastic. If you don't have Ministry of Healing, let me know. I'll make sure you get a copy. Um, but it says this, so frail, so ignorant, so liable to misconception is human nature that we each should be careful in the estimate he places upon another. We little know the bearing of our acts upon the experience of others. What we do or say may seem to us of little moment when, could our eyes be opened, we should see that upon it depend the most important results for good or for evil. The, the words we use are, they're huge. And they could be a great detriment to somebody, or they could be a treasure, like a golden apple in a, a setting of silver. Living a life of integrity means recognizing the frailty and limited ability of our own intelligence. It means giving others the benefit of the doubt and, and treating them with generosity. Now, there's a, a final aspect. We've talked about um, this moral inventory, being honest with myself, not living a two-faced life with one secret life and one facade that I show the public. We, we've talked about the need to, be, to have integrity in relationship to others, treating them with, uh, with truth, um, not lying about who they are, but also not gossiping um, and, and undermining their character in public. And, and we've talked about this in the context of deception, that there should be no deception in our lives. We should live transparent lives. But, but there's one more aspect of this law that I think is really important for us to grasp. This ninth command is worded in such a way that it makes me believe that its intention is to point us to the plan of salvation. Let's read it again. Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That word witness is a critical word in this whole thing. It, it means to testify or a testimony as in the court of law, like don't lie about your neighbor. And of course, um, in, in a court of law when they're um, under prosecution. But of course, Jesus, he separates this out a little bit, removes uh, the, the neighbor issue and says, just don't bear false witness at all. Uh, here in Exodus, this command is not to give this false testimony um, but uh, the command is, is so much bigger than, than that. Uh, and I, I want to look at this idea of testimony. Just take it away from the false part. Take it away from the courtroom scenario. And what other testimony can we have? Um, we, we have, for example, the Old Testament and the New Testament. These are, th these are witnesses. And in fact, in Revelation chapter 10, we find two witnesses that it talks about. Um, and that's a, a fun comparison. But John 5, 39, Jesus says this, you search the scriptures, the Old Testament, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that testify about me, that witness about me. Jesus says that the Bible is this true witness about God and his plan of redemption. Don't bear false witness takes on a, a new perspective when we think about it from that, uh, from that angle. 
And then if you, if you go all the way to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 3, um, you read the story of um, the, these churches, and if you understand how uh, Revelation goes, there's several series of sevens, and uh, this first series of seven is seven churches. And, and each of these series of seven seem to be progressing through time, where the first is, is around the time of the apostle, um, and the last is around the time of the second coming. And this is the last church in this list of seven. It's the final church right before Jesus' second coming. And Jesus says this about himself, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. And he, he's about to say some pretty harsh things to this end time church. Uh, he's going to tell this end time church um, that um, we, we think that we're all good, that we're wealthy, that we've got, we're, we're well clothed, that we're well fed, that we see things clearly. And it's to this church that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true and faithful witness. He, he's he's going to say to them that they are actually naked and blind and hungry, and, and that he is the real witness. Now, this is a church that's supposed to be the witness. Um, they're the ones that are called to proclaim a faithful and true message about Christ. The contrast is impossible to miss. I am true. You're a living lie. That's, that's what he just told us. You're living a two-faced life. You're bearing false witness about yourselves and about me. Jesus says this with love and gentleness. And, and he adds in verse 19 of Revelation 3, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. He, he's not exposing us because, he, because he's mean and, and doesn't like us. He's exposing our lie because he wants a relationship with us. In, in our lie, we've pushed him out to the side so that he can't be part of our lives. We live, uh, we live a life that's, that's hiding the truth. And, and Jesus, Jesus has to be pushed aside in order for us to keep the lie hidden. And so Jesus says in verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus' goal is not dividing and breaking people by facing us with this, mo this message. His, his goal is to reignite a loving relationship. He says that he wants to come into our homes. He wants to spend time with us. He wants to have meaningful and transparent relationship with us. And then look in verse 21. He says, to the one who conquers, I will grant with him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Isn't that what Jesus had in mind when he said that, um, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven? If you overcome, and this isn't about, um, about, about winning the battle, conquering. This is about surrender and submission. This is about taking that fierce moral inventory and recognizing that we live a life that's faking it so that people think that we're all good. And when we can face that, and when we can put aside the fakeness and just be our honest selves, then Jesus has a chance. If we live a life that's teachable, humble, a life of integrity, 